Hey everybody, we're back with Oddcast with Fiona and Ben. And Julia. Julia, special guest today. All the way from Georgia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. What an honor it is to be here. (laughs) Thank you for being The honor is all ours. You're our esteemed (laughs) guest today. (laughs) I like the episodes where we have guests. I think it's a nice, lively energy. Not that we're not lively together, but you know. (laughs) <laughs> new ingredient i think we broke our year hiatus with a recent episode right uh-huh. but now, now uh it's been yet a while since that i think that was back in october maybe that was our like spooktober one uh spooktober. Did, we did one with ian that was like a year ago though oh that was the year ago one okay never mind Whatever. Um, it's been a while. So, um, so Julia, hi. Uh, Hello. We're, um, I'm in Seattle. Ben's in Olympia. So we're both on the West Coast. And you are coming from where today? Atlanta, Georgia. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's currently not raining in Seattle. How's the weather over there? It's actually pretty nice. We're finally getting some kind of like winterish weather. Like it had been kind of in the 60s, 70s for a long time. Um, now it's, yeah, it's, it's just finally touched down below freezing like a few days ago. So yeah, like in the 50s currently. That's it's so precious. Sunny. It's sunny outside. Um, no snow yet, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. <laughs> when, I, I'm kind of forgetting, does it usually snow in January? Um, sometimes January, February, I think we've had snow as late as like April. Um, it can be, it can be erratic for sure. I remember when I was young, there was a freak hail storm, uh, in, I think June one time that was pretty wild, but yeah. Um, cool. So, uh, how, um, are you virtual right now? Or I would say, yes. I mean, in terms of like, um, for work or, oh, for work. Yeah. Activities. I'm yeah, working from home virtual. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. going well. What about you and your, I guess your classes and whatnot? Well, there's a little drama surrounding my, uh, my status there. Uh, our, administration had us going back they they gave us one week to be virtual and then they were going to send us back in person um starting on monday but the students uh got together wrote an email to the administration for my school just just the policy school students and said hey uh this is like uh you need to give options because not everyone's in the same boat some people are immunocompromised or live with immunocompromised people. So please uh, give us the option at least. And so we're actually going to be remote for a bit through January now. Um, and then we'll, we'll see from there after this Omicron surge passes. So I'm virtual right now. I don't know about work yet, but we'll see after Monday. It's pretty crazy okay. just being on, being on Twitter and getting like a firsthand account of like schools and hospitals are like breaking down like the entire school and hospital system is just crumbling before our eyes and like i am so glad that i'm like 
not a healthcare worker or a teacher or a parent, frankly. Uh, I mean, kudos to them, but oh my God, like. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough job. I really do feel for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Who are working in the healthcare system right now. Yeah. And it's like, we're all tired of, of like, we're all tired, <laughs> sick and tired of being sick and tired of uh, the isolation and all the negatives. Like, you know, I, I hear a lot of students complaining about uh, their focus on Zoom and people don't want to sit in front of a camera for a long time. I get that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough call to make. I heard recently in Seattle that some like 40% of students didn't return to public schools, I think. Um, it, and they, they all just were, were absent that first week. And so I think they're looking at the, the going back policy now. Wow, that's a really high percentage. Student strike. They're going to want us to come back and keep, uh, keep the machine going. But uh, we have to break out out and uh take the red pill (laughs) (laughs) oh take the red pill nice i see what you did there Um, well that's what's so great about the matrix as an analogy it's like it just works (laughs) for so many different like analogies like (laughs) it really really does it really does and i love that it's like kind of a modern um interpretation of like these kind of really ancient philosophies and concepts I feel like y'all have been inducted and I haven't really. Um, what, what are some of these ancient philosophies that you're thinking of? Before the podcast, we were talking about The Matrix 4, how two out of three of us had seen it and had thoughts about it. But I like how in The Matrix 4, that you know, it's very meta, right? Very self-referential. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mostly mostly in a positive way. Sometimes it's annoying. But, mm-hmm. but they actually like have like a full scene in the movie where they're like what does the matrix represent it's about capitalism it's about trans experience it's about like patriarchy and the family structure they're like they're they're like very like overtly discussing what the matrix as a analogy means to different people yes they are very in tune with all of the i guess critiques and the common uses of their like the matrix movies to illustrate certain points the only thing that i really wanted to say about the matrix <laughs> then we can move on if you want is, 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 um, so apparently and this is directly addressed in the movie julia you probably noticed they like reference warner brothers by name in the movie like oh, our yeah. parent company warner brothers well like really is making us do this you know and so is that the parent company yeah, yeah. Um, so Lily Wazowski, uh, so th- th- like she did not want to make a Matrix Four at all. But Warner Brothers had been like pressuring her for like a decade and saying like we're just gonna like do this without you, like without your permission, without your creative stamp. We're just gonna make this fourth movie. And so finally, she's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Like I'll do this thing. This like this like most prized achievement of my life, but that's also been like a creative noose around my neck for my entire creative career as I'm trying to make all these other new movies, but everybody just wants another Matrix movie. And so like, (laughs) fine, like I will make the Matrix movie that I want to make, my singular vision that like directly addresses the fans, the studios, the people who love the Matrix. And they even address like the fact that elements from the Matrix, like the Red Pill, have been like appropriated by like right-wingers over the past decade you know like people who want to like destroy destroy her basically you know and like that's why i think it's it's overall is brilliant i i think yeah i think this is like a great point i had forgotten about the whole like red pilling as like a um as like a, a popular 
saying now, I think that that's actually, I didn't know that backstory. So that's really, um, that makes a lot of sense. Do you agree? Do you, do you like it? Did you like it? I don't know. Part of I guess some of the, like the, I guess the meta, um, the meta-ness of the new matrix was a little bit, I don't know. It kind of seemed a little bit on the nose if I, but like hitting you over the head, it was almost too, um, too much of an attempt to be super self-aware. I don't know. I feel like there's just something missing about it. I I can't, I'm having a hard time articulating exactly what I would give it. I would say I'd liked it more than not, but I know. I feel like it was missing something. I'll have to come back to that. (laughs) Yeah. Is it too like tired at this point? Like, was it sort of a rehash of the same, same material for you? I know Ben, you said it wasn't, it was like, I mean, no, no, no. It, it absolutely was, but like, that was the point. Like they were flying right into the sun of, of that whole issue. And yeah, it, def- it definitely was not a perfect movie. I think overall though, I, I respect like an ambitious swing, even if it's a swing and a miss, then something that's like safe and like passable, you know, like, I like that this was ambitious at all. You know? mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, d- it did better than I expected. There are things I liked about it. There are things I didn't like about it. I mean, I think one of the things that I was a little bit sad about is because like kind of Neo is kind of like kind of wandering around a little bit like a sad puppy almost. And I was just like, it was so hard to be like, oh, just looking at like Keanu Reeves just portrayed like this like kind of lost guy who's like in his what, 40s, 50s in the Matrix. Like, oh. That's how it always looks, though. I know, but I was like, they know, God damn it, these people know their audience so well. Like, this is like a lot of people, like all the millennials who are like, oh, they lost. They're just like trapped in some desk job. You know, they're doing... (laughs) Yeah, I know. So, I mean, there's kind of, I think maybe, why is that? Yeah, like, I guess going back to like, it kind of hit a little bit too hard. It kind of was a little bit too spot on in certain ways. I'm like, oh, God, gosh. Yeah, I mean, um, but I liked that, you know, uh, Trinity was kind of like leading the way and um, kind of, in essence, more of a badass than Nia was this time around. I mean, they've all been kind of badass, but like definitely, yeah, sad puppy vibes. <laughs> well, it's it's funny after seeing a movie like, like Dune, that's that was almost like the originator of these sort of like Jesus, like, this is the one savior. We will call him the one, you know, he's the Messiah, the Jesus who's going to lead us to salvation and all that. And how the matrix like plays right into that. But then it also, even in the original trilogy, like turns out on its head and saying like, well, actually he's not the one, like the path of the one is walked by many, blah, blah, blah. And like, just like he wasn't the one any more than Trinity was like, Trinity is also the one because she can fly too. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, this is, yeah. It goes without saying there are a lot of spoilers. And I think, you know, that makes me think of like the the quote um, in the end. What is it? Um, addresses Neo is like, you know, between Smith and Neo as, you know, Smith says, hey, the difference between you and I is like, you, anyone could be you, but I can be anyone. And I'm like, wow, what does that mean? I'm trying to unpack that. Um, <laughs> and okay. And then they can go into, of course, like Neo, what is it like? This is like the, like Neo's good and Smith is bad. Or is it like, you know, more complex? Like you think of the yin and yang. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what does this mean? And, and if Smith is a representation of like, kind of like 
negative qualities like evil in essence like um i can be anyone but right. like and neo is like kind of the representation i guess more of like you know like essential goodness like no more positive qualities and anyone can be neo i mean that like to me i was just trying to like chew on that uh, yeah. it's very elitist yeah well in the in the matrix like all the one means is that it's like a hidden algorithm that could destroy the matrix that's hidden inside of a human. And Smith is the hidden algorithm that could destroy the matrix hidden inside a program. And so it's like Christ and the antichrist. Anyway. So in the matrix is flight representative of like the, uh, the achievement of enlightenment. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like only that's one person. Can do. It's, it's like somebody can do something like break the laws of physics. Everyone else who knows they're in the matrix can bend the laws of physics and he can just break it entirely. Okay. Is, which is why you see all these stylized fight scenes of people doing these flips and slow motion shit. Cause they, they are just like faster, stronger, more able to do stuff. Cause they've already freed their minds. But you know, the one or Neo, he can free his mind so much because he's the one that he can fly and stop bullets and all that. Because he's yeah. essentially the embodiment of goodness. No, well, well, not I guess no. That, that woke or I think you could take it a lot of ways. To me, it's like you know why you just a lot of people don't even question whether or not they can fly. They just assume they cannot, metaphorically speaking. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it's just like. The, in the matrix like this you know being able to fly real you realize that like the constraints that you're taught that are your constraints aren't actually constraints it's um kind of it could be like it's you know the the workings around you or it could be like analogy for culture like you can actually you don't have to you know stay in your like place that's designated for you you can break out of that you can like defy the expectations hmm? oh I mean, that's, that's one way to interpret it. What do you think then? About? Like the fl what flight symbolizes in the matrix. I think it just looks cool. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's, it's very uh, overtly Superman-like in th this sense of like, th this juxtaposition between singular saviors and collective liberation. And like, are, is the goal collective liberation and solidarity or are we waiting for Superman? Right. And in the movie, I think there's a lot of dialogue between these two, almost like religious, like religious versus practical ways of liberating ourselves. Um, the leader versus the group. Which you mentioned for Dune as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, Dune was the originator of like a lot of this shit, too. Like uh -huh. the problematic messiah. Have you seen Dune, Julia? I have. I watched, that was one of the things that I enjoyed um, as kind of like a response to like the pandemic is that I got to like sit down and watch all these classics that for some reason I had never seen. And the original like Dune was one of them. And then of course I saw the new one that you know just came out and I liked both of them. You um, like the, the David Lynch version? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean. <laughs> Very weird. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was very weird in a lot of ways. And, you know, but I think it had a lot of um, really um, beautiful symbolism. Have you seen either of them, Fiona? Uh, yeah, I watched uh, The New Dune in Theaters of Ben. And then uh, and then John had uh, The Old Dune on at one point, And I was 
sort of trying to not watch too much of it while doing homework. And every time I looked up, I was just, I think my face was just like, (laughs) I know, right? I know, right? (laughs) It's hard to look away sometimes, especially the dude in the tank who's like uh, the evil Baron dude. Um, Yeah, in the David Lynch version, it's just really creepy. In the Matrix, do they... uh, do they promote the idea of collective liberation or the singular savior? This is a big spoiler, I guess. Well, in the original trilogy, you have someone like Morpheus who is almost like has this like religious fervor towards Neo. But as the series goes on, the second and third movie, you get introduced to the wider city of Zion and you realize there's a lot of differing opinions. A lot of people who straight up like do not like Neo, do not believe in the one they're like, they basically see Morpheus as like a religious zealot. And they're like, yeah, we're going to like bat in the hatches and get a bunch of machines and robots and fortify the city and like work together while you're off doing whatever shit you think you have to do because you think you're the savior. At least that's how I remember. And then the fourth one, do they continue that theme? Like, does it show any of Zion or other people? Well, we don't want to, we don't want to give it away. (laughs) Things, things we do during the deep pandemic to take our minds off of everything else. <laughs> right, right. Um, I wanted to get us to um, living a different, ver- a different version of our lives right now, but making it, um, making it into uh, the best version we can. Maybe not even despite the circumstances, but just making it still an exciting time to be alive. I was having this conversation with my housemate, Harry, and just kind of how it's like, well, like, why am I going to grad school? Why am I doing, you know, we've had versions of this conversation over the past couple of years. Like, why am I going through the motions of preparing for a future when the world is clearly just like collapsing in front of me? Like, why am I trying to be a biologist or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like, why, like, why should I even try? But it's, it just feels silly sometimes. Not that it just feels silly sometimes going through the motions of like, I still have to go to work. <laughs> like, uh, still have to like go through the motions of doing in slow, muddy motion what I was doing before the pandemic, but now caught in all these like obstacles. And it just kind of feels silly after a while. Even, um, even if the idea of doing it doesn't feel silly, the feeling of doing it feels silly. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and that actually like makes me kind of I still my mind is going back to the matrix a little bit (laughs) like okay going through the motions what is that why are we going through the motions what does that mean and I think it's what is that is just like cultural what is a cultural expectation like that's just what you do you you know like there's like you know of course it's like the, the typical like elevator as like a lot of you know books say if you on polyamory will like talk about like you know, you go for life, you're born and you're in your school and then you graduate, maybe you go to college and then you get a job and then you get married and have a family and mortgage and, you know, and then you get old and retire and, you know, whatever. You wind your way <laughs> through a nursing home. Or yeah. So there's like this, like, there's this expectation. It's like kind of this unspoken thing of like what everyone just kind of assumes is like the way things should go. And often in that there's, um, 
you know, it's implied like you, you know, you should do things like be monogamous. There are certain things that you just take for granted is like, you don't even question, Hey, should I be, you know, so you're born with like certain genitalia, you're a man, you're a woman, boom, bada bing, bada boom, very easy, right? You need to find one partner, usually the opposite sex, you know, like monogamy, bada bing, bada boom, easy. And then that creates your nuclear, you set up for like nuclear family, you have babies, you get a mortgage and you like kind of quarantine you or not quarantine, but I guess you are now Insulates. forming the basic unit of capitalism, right? With your little, with your nuclear family in your house, with your 2.5 children or whatever. And um, I think a lot of this, this empty feeling that we have is like the emptiness comes when you, when I think the things that you're doing, you're just doing because you're expected to do them and you don't question them. And I think the emptiness comes when there's like a misalignment, right? When what you're wanting is different from what the path, the, from the path that's laid out in front of you, that's kind of predetermined for you in a sense. Yeah, and all the those societal expectations of what what path you take seem really laden with values. Like people are lining the path towards school, towards work with values. Talk of values, you know, you need to you need to be a hard worker. You need to, and and there's certain assumptions that go with people who don't have a college degree or uh, are still living at their parents' house at, in their 30s or, or whatnot. So we, we sort of, we stigmatize people who are not on that path. Absolutely. I think, I mean, going back to kind of like this, like, you know, pandemic, which I know I hate, I hate saying this word because I know everyone's like, ah, it's a word that you heard like so many times, but to say it again, and kind of, I think the, the, the void and like kind of some of this drudgery, this like tiredness that everyone feels and going back to like kind of a point that's been made for the past approximately two years is that it's shine. It's this whole situation is shining a light on what is not working in our current society. It's just it's just able to kind of lift the veil just a little bit more so that we see kind of I think the things that weren't really working for us for a lo- for most of us for a long time and it's just we're more in tune with how they probably don't work for us and I think that that's why part of the reason why there's so much like reshuffling for a lot of people in this time where people are like oh my god you know screw this office job and you know when you got to like people finally got to work from home they realized just like um, of course, working from home is not necessarily a good fit for everyone, but for a lot of people, it was really enlightening um, and liberating. And I think it's just like, mm-hmm. it's wonderful that we are able to question and kind of see, I think people are seeing more of how they don't have to follow this predetermined script. They can go off script. They can do something that's not conventional. They can, you know, I guess, metaphorically, they can learn to fly in the matrix. <laughs> um, and what is that flight? I mean, you could, it could be anything, you know, having like non-monogamous relationships that are open or like open relationships, ethical, consensual ones, or reconsidering what family means. Is it just like, you know, one your spouse and like a few children in a house? Or maybe um, are you more interested in like collective living? I mean, what is it in your life that you have been uh, just taking for granted, assuming really is the case? What have you just accepted unquestioningly in your life? And that is maybe causing you to feel unfulfilled. 
I mean, can you, I know this is like a big question. I don't know if y'all can think of anything off the top of your head or any instances from your own lives where you had like an aha moment where you're like, oh my God, I just assumed that this was the way things were. But then you realize, no, this is not the way things have to be. I have a choice here. No one ever told me I had a choice. But In my mind right now, I'm sort of making distinctions between imagine someone who like knows they're in the matrix and there's this assumption of both liter- both in the movie and as a metaphor. Oh, like once you realize you're in the matrix, you're like, oh, this is all fake. This is all obligatory. I can just unplug. I can log off. I can do whatever. And I think there are categories of things in our lives where simply realizing that it's a ruse and it's bullshit is enough to unplug and walk away. I think there's other things in our lives where simply realizing that it's still not enough. Like we are stuck in it, where it was just like where we know we're trapped in it and we can't get out. It's like we can't wake up from a bad dream called capitalism or mm. or bad healthcare or like I have to work a nine to five job to support my kids kind of thing, even though I know like I'm not getting what I deserve and what I need. Um, and like you can't just wake up from that and like walk away from that. I mean, I guess you can, but. Um, whereas other things like, you know, being addicted to social media or like being addicted to like cable news or like being a lot of sort of personal addictions, I think maybe could fall under the category of like wake up. And that is enough, maybe. Yeah. Well, I've heard a lot of people I've, I've heard this phrase a lot over the last two years. It's just like it took a pandemic to realize this. And, and now there's a lot of anger stirred up on social media and all these platforms for the material conditions that we have. And, and people are like, no, I, I, I want remote options for work. No, we can't keep powering all these offices because of climate change. Oh, wow, look, the waterways are clearer now because there's less pollution. And uh, there's, you know, people are seeing like little examples of how things could be a little different. Um, and, and it's exposed a lot of the horrendous failures of our society with healthcare and frontline workers being sacrificed. And so people are taking to social media to air these grievances and, and collectively discuss them. So that's the, that's the example of like a big external event happening and causing us to change our way of thinking. Um, but, you know, in lieu of a pandemic, what what does that look like? Do we just go back now? Has this changed anything? I think it depends on who you ask, because I know a lot of people who aren't inclined or aren't really wanting to change. They like the way things were. They want to go back to normal. I hear, you know, you hear that all the time. People like, well, I want to go back to normal when things get back to normal. I personally, there's a lot of things I don't really want to, I personally don't want to go back to normal. A lot of people were fine kind of floating the mainstream, so to speak. You, I think that, that that is kind of propelling that desire from so many people propels this like push to really grasp onto something that wasn't working for everyone, whether it be like, you know, in office work or, or in-person learning really. But yeah, to, to get away from that, it's a lot more tricky than just being woke, so to say. And kind of like Ben White were saying where, I mean, uh, like, I guess, kind of alluding to like capitalism, like you still have to, you know, have money to pay for your basic needs just because you realize that the system's broken doesn't mean that you can so easily es- escape it. So what do you do in that instance? 
Yeah, corporations have just gotten richer during this pandemic. I don't see the working class getting richer right now or uh, all of the political mechanisms that are in play. I, I don't see like broader support for higher minimum wages right now or things like that. Like there's there's still the people in power that are that are there. But I think um, a lot of it that makes me think like a lot of it comes down to like exhaustion. And I think a lot of people like the lower middle classes probably like you know probably more exhausted than most people because we're kind of taking the brunt of all the difficulties that are arising. And that's kind of, I think, a way to keep people from really, I guess, having the energy to shift the status quo. I mean, starting in like early 2021, 2021 alone was the biggest like year for like mass strikes and like labor organizing that I've seen in my entire lifetime. Like they even had to cover it on mainstream news last October. There were like MSNBC, CNN, is this strike-tober? Like, so <laughs> I mean, seriously, like I've, I've never really seen mass strikes ever covered like that on cable news like that. Um, so I think like there is some agency that a lot of like working class people are sort of realizing. It's, it's like, in my mind, there's always this tension between consciousness and like organizing. Like how, if we want to change the world, we need to, we need to change our consciousness but we also need to change our social structure. And I feel like so much of the last 50 years is the dialect, the dialectic between those two. You have a bunch of like hippies who want to change the world. They realize politics is hard. And then they grow even in, in, in the matrix. There's that line where she's like, you're more interested in, in growing tomatoes than in freeing minds. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> wow. That really cuts deep. Yeah, that's um, that's actually a, yeah, that's a really good point. And that actually makes me think um, of this TED talk I listened to a long time. We basically really drove home the separation between our hemispheres. We have like on one hand, what our right hemisphere that controls the left sided brain. And that one is more like um, apparently in tune with like interconnectedness of everyone in the world and the universe and, you know, very like free flowing and just like loving. And then there's like our our left hemisphere of our brain that controls the right side of our body. And that one um, is very good at like logical organization, linear time and planning and, you know, setting, I guess, goals and, you know, individuality and separation. And I feel like, yeah, so much of the struggle as our, like, as humanity, I feel like is like, you know, comes down to the communication between these two parts within us. Right. And it's just like this ongoing struggle, it seems. It's so hard to be balanced in those aspects, in my opinion, or at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to work past just survival brain of, okay, what do I need to get through the week or even the day? And that's just your individual mandate is to survive. But sometimes some people are able to, through various conditions that they're living under that maybe others aren't, get a little bit more of the forest and and try and think on that collective scale of how can I lift everyone up along with myself? I like think sometimes there's, you know, all these instances in the late 1890s of these during the industrial revolution, you know, these big factories open up all the sweatshops and there every single day, there'd be a big crowd of people who were trying to get paid for the day. The company would like choose who gets to work for the day. And there's always be people left behind. Right. 
like people used to like beat each other up for like taking their shift that they wanted. And then like you see like 30, 40 years later in the 1930s and 40s, like people would be like doing like solidarity strikes, like with other workers who like weren't even part of their same department or even there who worked at, the, at that same company. But they like saw that like their other brothers and sisters were being like discriminated against and they walked off their own jobs even though it, they were, had fine jobs at the time. How do you like go from like point A to point B to like build that conscious sense of solidarity and collective liberation that both works like in your head and your heart, but then also in new social structures and community that they built to create that true sense of community. I, we use the word community for dumb reasons, I think these days that don't actually have anything to do with what that word actually means. But uh, yeah, they, they created new communities for themselves. Yeah, and it took leaders, probably. Like, it, it took a few people who... Neo and Trinity. Neo and Trinity. <laughs> two, two leaders, yeah, to lead us all um, to collective liberation. Well, that's so interesting. Um, it makes me think of what I know of intentional communities and, like, the different, like, the general types of different, like, different communities where some of them are focused around, like, kind of a, like, a... Um, a charismatic leader, for example, and others, you know, opt for like a more kind of communistic um, approach and like have like no sense of leadership. And it's interesting because a good friend of mine, of course, has done a lot of research on the various types of intentional communities. And it's interesting, like the ones that opt for a more like kind of anarchic or like communist style of structure, communist structure, and they don't have like any clear leader. It's just like they operate off of consensus it's really hard to make any progress, right? Because not everyone agrees and it takes forever to get a consensus. Like for someone to be like, yes, we're doing this. No, we're not doing this. <laughs> everyone on the same page. Whereas like the communities with like charismatic leaders tend to have a little bit more power, at least for the, the length of the lifetime or the leadership of the charismatic leader. Because you have one person who's being like, we're doing this, we're not doing this. And I see that's just like kind of the struggle between for a lot of like organizations that really just want to make meaningful, good change. It's like, how do you do that? Because like, on one hand, it can be problematic to have that one like charismatic person making all the decisions. On the other hand, it's just like the progress can be so slow, almost too slow when you're trying to have everyone make a consensus. So what is like, yeah, how do we <laughs> how do we move past these problems? We just moved to China, I guess. Oh, I don't know if that's the answer, but um. China's funny. They call themselves communists. They're also very state state capitalists, you know. <laughs> but they're also very like efficient. Like they respond to crises way better than we do because they kind of have like the iron hand of authoritarian rule a little bit like when they need it whereas like america is just so a bumbling i wouldn't even call it a bumbling messy democracy because i feel like america is really just two different factions of the ruling class just eating each other alive and then everything is just at this lockstep standstill right now because like yeah like the ruling class also fights each other too they're not their interests are aligned they're connected but if you have like high finance capital of the democratic party and the large landowning I don't know, I'm the richest person in the smallest town in America, kind of kind of people fighting each other. It's like, okay, like still nobody wins. Even no matter who wins, we lose. Yeah. So we all, uh, if we were to draw a Venn diagram of converging interests, I'd say that, uh, you know, we could 
We could talk ad libitum about the pandemic. We could talk about class warfare uh, politics. And we could also talk about poly. So, but, but what about what about the uh, what about the politics of the poly pandemic? <laughs> nice. Oh wow! Just, like, we're just lily padding each topic right now as we go along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Julia, is there a poly pandemic? I I mean, in what sense? Like that polyamory is just like blowing up and becoming mainstream. Is that like? Or what do you mean by poly pandemic? I'm curious. Poly's gone viral. <laughs> are we, I guess, changing, are we winning any moral battlegrounds here? Are we uh, winning any hearts and minds? Is, is this a bit more mainstream now? Are people more accepting of it or are they less accepting than ever? Well, oh, that's such an interesting question. Okay. I do think that polyamory is becoming more mainstream as like, at least as like a concept. It's something that's becoming more implanted in the collective unconscious. Like people are becoming more aware of it as a thing and what it represents and the ways that you can go about having those relationships. It's interesting because the more, I guess, the more people are aware of it, I think the more um, it's able to be picked on. Like, I think it was it like more recently um, religious organizations that probably had even no idea what polyamory was are coming out and being like, we oppose polyamory. So the fact that it's even getting mainstream makes it so that like, you know, obviously conservative groups or people who are like, you know, just not inclined to like be into any kind of like thing that challenges the status quo like that and start throwing arrows at it. So I think the fact that it's people are more aware of it it's becoming more people, recognized. Yeah, people are yeah, people are being more open about it makes it so it's more yeah it's more of a target and i'm a little bit concerned about that you can draw parallels of that between gay and lesbianism in like earlier times where a lot of it was on the hush hush was on the down low and people just like pretended like they were doing everything for the status quo and they were doing what they wanted behind closed doors so it's it's kind of a it's an, to me it's kind of a, a scary time I feel like especially in um you know more conservative places for a lot of people I feel like there's just more hate that is going to be thrown at people who are in open relationships like that because people are more aware of it they have something a new target to hate on so you're in a big city but you're still in the south and um you are in a different, uh, it sounds like, a political ecosystem than I was when I was living in Athens. Have you personally um, ever wanted to downplay your polyamorous status around uh, coworkers, family, anyone in your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and for what reasons? Like, I think it's really, I think it's, um, really uncomfortable for a lot of people. I personally think that um, open relationships are more uncomfortable for others who are not in them um, than it is to be gay or lesbian. I think it's like, um, it's okay. still kind of, tam at, le at least in certain areas, of course, it's taboo. People don't understand it. It really threatens them. It threatens, especially for a lot of people, monogamy and like your nuclear family. I think that that's really important. For a lot of people, that's what they base their entire life around. That's what they struggle so work, work so hard every day to kind of protect and affirm. And when you bring into question a lot of these um, 
these things that they just, uh, um, I guess, that they value and are really just kind of grasping tight to, it's scary for them. A lot of people, you know, and it it shouldn't be, it should not be, but I think it stirs up deep-seated fears of loss and lack Mm -hmm. and essentially scarcity thinking. A lot of people, you know, you read about this in pretty much any like book on polyamory, uh, monogamous people who aren't really familiar with it. So they feel like people like will lose friendships and like good connections when they come out as poly to their friends and family. Cause they're like, Oh my God, you're going to steal my husband or, Oh my God, yeah. like, you're like people. Oh my God. You are, you're one of those people. You're one of those people. I can't trust you. And I think that's so sad because I think any like ethical poly person in their right mind would not want to have anything to do with um, someone who's super like into monogamy um, and wouldn't want, basically no one would want to like any, I think any person who's behaving in an ethical way would not cross those boundaries. I find it really interesting that we have two sides of the country represented here. Um, We have Atlanta, Georgia in the deep South. uh, And then we have Washington to kind of, liberal areas in Washington represented. I'm wondering if uh, maybe Ben and I can talk a a second to like, uh, if we think there's some stigma against poly people based on, you know, us being sex crazed homewreckers. Exactly. Well, well said. Yeah. I want to hear about y'all's experiences because I think I'm sure it's a bit different. Yeah. On the West coast. It's not that much different. Have you met anyone who considers you to be a sex-crazed homewrecker when you announce that you're polyamorous, Ben? I mean, they won't say it to my face, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, I get vibes. I guess it's, it's interesting, like, talking to family members about it versus, like, talking to, like, some of my male friends about it is very different. There's, like, a sense of, like, because, like, half my friends are, like, getting married and then the other half are like, oh, nice going, you know, like, oh, yeah, you have multiple girlfriends. Our, our, okay, Ben, great, crazy Ben over here, you know, <laughs> living his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then sometimes I get this sort of quiet uncomfortableness from a married couple who just go, oh, anyway, let's talk about literally anything else. <laughs> um, There's a lot of avoidance that you, you, you relate to me. Like, people are just kind of like, oh, um, so... Like does yeah. not compute, does not compute, will not respond, moving on. Yeah. Very, very uh, few times are people like, oh, you're polyamorous. Like, can you tell me how that works? Yeah, or I'm really curious. Very like, people want, want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Although in my experience, like I, I was getting dinner last quarter with two people who had either been, poly- one had been polyamorous in their past and, and the other um, is currently polyamorous. And, and so we were like, I, w- I was meeting up with some like students some fellow students and we'd, we'd talk poly sometimes. And I've met a few people in Seattle who are like, Oh yeah, poly. Like it's a, it's, it's a well-established thing, but I, I have also like talked with well Ben and my other partner about the dating scene and how there's a lot of stigma on apps like Tinder or whatever, where you, have it in your bio, you know, you have it in your bio that you're polyamorous and then you start talking with somebody and you assume, okay, they, they're down, they're, they're cool with this. And then like they ghost you the second they realize that you are in a polyamorous relationship where they're just like, oh, that wasn't what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So I hear, I hear some of those stories too. 
To me, it's almost sounds like they think when you say you're polyamorous, that's like a vague bluff. It's like another way of saying, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing. And then, and then when they realize like, oh, wait, you actually do know what you're doing and you're absolutely doing this thing. That's a little too serious and too much for me, you know, because I feel like a lot of people who have not delved maybe as deeply into polyamory as maybe the, the three of us do kind of use it as a I'm just shopping around placeholder phrase until they yeah. really want. So you, you fear like lack of a deep connection. You fear being a side thing. You fear that you won't get their time or commitment. Yeah. Or that hopefully it's just a phase. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I've noticed that too. And quite frankly, I've met people who are in the poly scene and they, I mean, I mean, and that's, it's totally valid. I don't want to like say that this is not like a valid way of like doing relationships. I mean, I think anyone can do whatever they want so long as they are being open, honest, ethical, I mean, not violating other people's boundaries, but there are a lot of people who are just kind of doing that kind of like fluttering around, you know, like sexually not really looking for much connection and then like come like, I guess, you know, once they're like in their thirties or so, it's just like, oh, it's time up. That was a phase. Now I'm going to like settle down. I, I do. I have met, I do know people who that that's like kind of true for them. It was just kind of like a fun exploration thing, but now they're older and they're wiser and it's time to really, you know, be an adult and leave all that poly nonsense behind. It was just them being like, a slut comes to mind, but there's, what is it? The, what is sluts usually directed at women? Like, what is it? Um, it's a bohemian lifestyle thing. Yeah. Right. Kind of being like a stud or, um, you know, I, I think that's common. Um, I think that those stories kind of like kind of overpower the stories of people who this is like kind of what they want to do and what have, what they have been doing their entire lives. It's not a phase. They do want to, I mean, it's a, you know, they want to have multiple meaningful, deep, romantic, intimate relationships with, you know, with a lot of people, they, they're not just looking for sex. I think, um, yeah, there, there is this like kind of stereotype from like mainstream society where it's just like, Oh, you're going to grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's kind of demeaning in a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's trivializing it in a way. And yeah, maybe it's true that some people do kind of, that was like more of a phase in their life and they explored that and they realized it's not for them. And now they, they know they, what they want. I think we'll hear hopefully more stories about from people who, I mean, this is like that. It's not that they, you know, they, it is a lifestyle and it's then hear how it was a sustainable lifestyle for them. I think it's just having it be more like, Oh, this slutty person just likes to sleep around and call it Polly. Uh, I think maybe those anecdotes fit better into mainstream culture. They're more understood by mainstream culture. I think for the main person who's not familiar with these concepts, and hasn't spent a lot of time on them. It's really hard to accept that there you, you can love multiple people and, you know, in romantic and, and um, like in intimate ways and sustain that. Yeah. Something I liked that you said earlier, like inevitably I talk about stigmatization when I talk about poly with uh, fellow poly people, but um, outside of the whole like pushing pushing against those stigmas, which can be kind of exhausting and just like take up all the airspace. I like what you said earlier, that poly is this way to use creativity to solve problems. And that relates to some of the themes that we've been talking about on this episode so far is 
um, bucking traditions, bucking the nuclear family tradition, et cetera, even, even solving some of these big societal issues. We're modeling a way of a, a different way of doing X thing that is part of life for, for a lot of people. But it's also about on a very fundamental level, like I know I sort of came to Polly because it was like a creative solution to this issue, quote, heavy air quotes of liking two people. And so I was like, well, what about this third path of why not date them both? And I, I don't know that just those kind of questions I think can be life changing. Like, why not this? So looking at the matrix, you're like, wait a minute, like (laughs) I can fly now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I think that is an excellent, um, an excellent example of um, where you like have having a realization where you, there is this option. There's this third option or this fourth option. There are more options. It's not just a binary, right? I see that this in, you know, in general with a lot of things now where people are coming to this realization, I think, you know, when it comes to either like, you know, your identity, like gender wise, like, or um, what kind of relationship styles you want to have? What kind of family structure do you want to have? What does that even look like at redefining family? Is family just like, you know, you, your spouse and like your, your biological offspring, or is it, can you be your family, be like you, your partners and like some pets or can it be, you, your partners and your partner's children. And, you know, you could just like, there's so many reiterations of it. And we are fed this false dichotomy of like, you know, you're either gay or you're straight. You're either male or you're female, like a woman or a man. You're either um, this or that, single or partnered. Um, I think when we realize it's a lot more complicated than that and there's a lot more choices on the table for us and we just, you know, we just have to, allow ourselves to explore those possibilities and find what is right for us. I, I, I'm hopeful that that will be like the, the change that is needed in our world to solve a lot of these issues. Being creative. <laughs> well, exactly. And it comes down to, I mean, that's all that's always changed. That's all that's ever changed. The world is like finding creative solutions to problems. Is the dawn of I, time. I've been thinking at what <laughs> point was being gay most socially legitimated was around the time of the gay marriage stuff. And about how for probably all the time leading up to that and at that time, the reactionary political sphere was like rallying against it, religious groups, conservatives, you know, holding up the sanctity, the sanctity of marriage, like Bill Clinton, you know, made the sanctity of marriage act, like of all people, probably a pedophile. Um, But there was so much like protectionism over marriage as the institution and sort of the legitimation of gayness had to be kind of funneled through the institution of marriage for it mm-hmm. to be finally like the dam breaking of the social legitimacy of it. And about how like at the time it seemed like, oh, isn't this great? We've finally broken through. And like, we're just as straight as you guys now because we're not <laughs> like in a way, in a way. Yeah. Um, because because we're married now. Yeah. Yeah. And how, but, but then at that point it becomes very limiting because there was also a lot of people in that community at the same time who were like pushing for way broader stuff than that. And kind of how sexual preference holds at a particular social and psychological thread of society, but then also relationship structures and the poly stuff pulls at a very different social and psychological thread. 
Um, and there is overlap, and I, I just like like thinking about like the overlaps of this question. Like, is poly queer? Like, how do we define both of these things? Right? Like, right. how many institutions do you have to fight against to call yourself queer? Is that what it's about? Is it about identity? Is it about structure? Is is it about like fighting fighting against social structures like the nuclear family and all the rippling effects of capitalism and expectation and procreation that's attached to that? Yeah, and these have all been different fights. So I I can understand if like some people sort of push back and are like, you can't say that your struggle to be legitimated as a polyamorous person is the same thing that we went through to get like gay rights. And uh, but I like I see both sides of the coin. I see the other side, which is why not include more in this like queering of the space. Like why why is this not also queering the space if we get down on a philosophical level about it? Not that I'm trying to get get invited, me, a mostly straight white guy trying to get invited into like queer spaces. Yeah. That's like really not what I'm interested in. But like, yeah, um, yeah just like the, there is an overlap. There is an overlap. But also like, where does it diverge to? Yeah. And there's other there's other different battles that the poly people have to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really good point. I mean, there's I think that's one of the things that's really you know, hot word these days is intersectionality. And what is the intersectionality of every injustice in our world? How can we, because, you know, it's, of course, there's so many different issues that you can work to improve. And how can we, as people who are wanting to make positive change in the world, um, how can we work together? How do we do that? I mean, and how can furthering one cause detract from another cause how do you prioritize these things? I think finding where they intersect and finding how furthering of one cause also helps further another cause, I think is critically important. It's really interesting. And you were talking about um, gay marriage being really huge. And obviously there were a lot of um, people in the LGBTQ communities who kind of did not feel like that was a good path to go, like to just like, okay, we already have this like, you know, queer, like these type, these queer spaces why do we want to like a little and queer people were you know pioneers with polyamory and sharing romantic partners or something that was like you know pretty and has been pretty common in like the queer community um for a long time and so and i think like the you know the the bible of poly you know the ethical slut the book um i believe uh those authors were um were queer identified if my memory serves correctly, it's been a few years since I've read that book. Yeah. Is that, is it really hurting the cause when you try to take the boat down the mainstream? I I think like maybe one answer I've arrived at is just like have these conversations in as many different spaces as you can with as many different people as you can. And hopefully, you know, these conversations are also being had in other spaces that have people who could represent a wider swath of, of communities here. But I, I think it's, it's good to keep asking questions always like these. One, one thing I wanted to, re- oh, sorry, if you have like another thought on this, please go. Oh, no, I'm just, I, <laughs> I'm just saying, I guess, I think, yeah, questions, 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 talking, sharing stories, questions, Asking things that are kind of seem like silly things to ask, like, when did you first realize that you were monogamous? When did you first realize you were straight? You know, a lot of like the people that are like, I mean, this question is, you know, like, when, when did you realize you were gay is directed at people because, you know, gay is not, you know, the default. 
questioning, asking yourself, when did you realize that the default was right for you? And then for a lot of people, when they come to, when they ask themselves these questions, like it could be anything like, when did I decide that I was monogamous? When did I decide I was, I identified as female? When did I realize I wanted to have children? You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Just like asking yourself, when did I realize this about myself? When it comes to things that are assumed to be default normal. And I think a lot of times people realize, oh, I never actually chose that for myself. I just assumed that was what was expected of me. And it was this unconscious belief that you've held all your life up until someone questioned you. I'm just imagining throwing that exact phrasing back at my boomer parents when they ask me things like, what's your long-term plan for polyamory? Or how do children fit into this? Uh, I, I had a conversation conversation with my dad a while back. And I asked him, would you like be against you know this if I had come out as like gay or trans or something? And he's like, well... No, he probably wouldn't, you know, because one is a choice and the other is an identity. It's like who you are and the other is what you do. And so that's one thing I hear a lot about that. Well, one one of these things is is who you are and the other is what you do. And then, of course, we get into all sorts of territory about, well, is Polly actually a more accurate, like, representation of who I am, whatever that really means. But Julia, as you were saying what you were saying I'm going to take it back to the majors one more time. <laughs> that scene, Neo asked Trinity, did you want to have kids? And Trinity's like, well, I, I guess I always wanted to have kids, but then I didn't know if like, that's just because that's what I actually wanted or that's what I was programmed to want. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. When I saw that in the movie, I was like, what? Yeah. I was like, what? So I was like, I've never seen a mainstream movie actually bring that up so spot on. I was like, boom I was like wow I was like I can't be- I can't believe because that's so long for so long has been such an edge such a taboo to oh. even cross over I haven't I've I can't say I mean I don't watch that many movies but I cannot say that I've ever seen a mainstream movie actually approach that specific topic or question so boldly ever and I was, I was I was very actually pleasantly surprised that they had the balls to kind of do that of course now you know talking about other like connects like fringe or non-mainstream communities like the child free um and alter- like communities and also like you know communities that are pushing for like an alternate like interpretation of what is family those are those voices are you know those stories are being shared more frequently and like more openly these days but it's still very taboo and i'm, I'm just so happy that you brought that up in <laughs> Yeah, I was really, um, I thought that was one of the most interesting and most, wow, fringy moments of the whole Matrix, like this now like empire that's like very mainstream um, to, to kind of like address those questions and motherhood being kind of obligatory. Like everyone just assumes that they are like, especially women, this is, you know, it's less, it's, the pressure is there for men, but it's less intense as it is for women. Cause Absolutely. we women, we are the biological procreators. We carry children in our womb and birth them. All these M's motherhood, monogamy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. To like call question that a lot of people never do that. I hear from, so I hear stories of so many women who just, you know, they're just like, they just assume that that's what they're going to do. They're just going to grow up. They'll hit 30 something. It's always like the thirties and 30 something. Boom. Yeah. There's a timeline for it. 
And yes, I mean, fertility wise. Yes. I mean, I think, okay. Yeah. There, there it makes sense. Like, you know, declining fertility, I think by age 38, but in, in our day, like we haven't adapted to the chain, like none of these norms, which norms don't adapt their norms. That's like, they're the antithesis of adaption, but like none of these like questions, these mainstream questions of like, when are you having kids, blah, 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 are adapting to the changing times and the changing times. Like, I just want to like yell back at people. Like, I don't have to have all the answers about these things. Like I don't, I really don't have to like have any answers right now about this. And especially not right now, because right now, like there's so much uncertainty and like, you're giving me an existential crisis, just asking me this. So please don't. Yes. And whether, and also like the appropriateness of asking like, when are you having babies or after you have your baby, then it's like, when are you having the next one? <laughs> and then because it's like, you it's can't. You're good one, for right? Now. <laughs> I, right. It's so funny. Like a lot of people, of course, women that choose not to have children or haven't had children yet for whatever reason, constantly interrogated, which I think is honestly very inappropriate to mm-hmm. ask these questions. Who are and, you and, most, most asked that by, 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 by married couples with kids, with your parents, like. By- well, I, I'm, I, um, because I'm not, I think it's usually happens more when you're engaged or when you're married as a couple, right? Mm-hmm. That's when you're going to be bombarded the most. I'm, I'm neither engaged nor married. So I don't think I get asked these questions as much. I mean, I think there are people like on, you know, like, when are you starting to think about your future? Like, when are you going to get engaged and then married and then have kids and like a mortgage and, you know, like housing, you know, job to pay for everything. And like, so, I mean, it's there, but I think, the further up you are on the escalator of this, you know, mainstream life, the more you're going to get bombarded with these questions. Yeah. And I just, I love that, like, we're sort of perceived at the bottom to be at the bottom of that escalator, just by the phrasing of that question that you just asked, like, when are you going to start thinking about your future? And it's like, bitch, I've been living <laughs> with my partner it. for several years, actually. Yeah. And I think that's funny. I yeah, I mean, there. I know, like people, like there's some in the length of the the partnerships I had that have been, I think for, for me, like kind of long term. It's interesting that mainstream society does not can really consider it legitimate unless you, you know, get it legally bound with like marriage. With using, if you go through institution marriage, then it's legitimate. Like, but your relationship is not legitimate. It doesn't matter if you've been together for like seven years with your partner. And like somebody who maybe met their spouse like three months ago, they got married and now they're pregnant. Like somehow people look to like the legal and societal frameworks more so than the actual qualities of the relationship to determine whether or not that relationship is really, you know, important or valid. I think that's sad. Yeah. Well, the same thing works with the poly too. Someone who's been dating and they're monogamous for five months will probably be more legitimated than someone with multiple partners dating for a couple of years. Yeah. 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 And then we have to ask why that is. And it's sad. I think what's sad when I see a lot of people who have like beautiful relationships, really caring, really wonderful relationships. And maybe they don't want to be married because they don't believe in the institution of marriage or whatever reason. It doesn't matter. I mean, people should do what feels in their heart of hearts right for them. And it's like their true expression of themselves. But it's sad when a lot of people just have this blind spot. They just can't see it because it doesn't have like, it's not backed by the government or um, like it's not legally binding. Why do we need to like a legally binding agreement to like, you know, prove our love to one another? 
And of course, in like poly, there's a problem, like you can't have more than one like legal spouse. I think it's because relationship maintenance isn't mainstreamed enough, like relationship, just good things to do in a relationship to, to keep it together are, are not like sort of mainstream knowledge or talked about. Like if you are doing couples counseling or something, people look at you like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, is everything okay? And it's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm like, I'm doing good. <laughs> like this, yeah. is, this is a good thing. Maintenance. Very interesting. Then how are we doing on time? Oh, it's, yeah, we should probably wrap it up. I do want to go and see the last of the daylight, the sun slipping away. So uh, it, Yeah, sun sets at like 4 p.m. here. So yeah. But I wish it was dark because I easily keep on talking. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, this is, this is really awesome. So, um, okay, so we had a few outstanding questions. Want to review all of the knowledge that we uh, gained in this conversation. Um, how do you live your best life right now, given the circumstances? How do we manage societal expectations versus our own values? What is the uh, main takeaway from the matrix? Like little questions like that. Yeah. And we'll, we will answer all these questions on our next episode. So stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Any, any wrap up thoughts, Julia? I guess just underscoring the importance of, you know, asking yourself questions. What is, what is the default? And then ask yourself, did you decide to do the default thing, whatever it is? And then if you didn't decide it, ask yourself why. And then from there, really trying to create, trying to craft a life that fits you and is in tune with your, like, you know, how, like, in line with like your unique expression. And it's okay if that's like something that looks very mainstream and it's okay if not doing what it feels, I guess, in, right and in tune with you. And also like getting creative, problem solving. Like how do you make these things happen? How do you use the resources available to you to like achieve what you want? This is extra special with that filter on right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry about. I wish our listeners could see that Julian has purple eyebrows, green lips, and a blue mustache and beard. Uh, and it's wonderful. It goes away for a second. And then it comes. He's had it the whole time. So. I know. I'm sorry. I don't know how you guys take, take me seriously. But, yeah. You're, I, I totally see if you ever decide to be a, a counselor or a therapist, you'd be so wonderful at it. Just going to uh, affirm that desire. Um, also, like all the colors in your background are very like soothing, kind of dark reds and browns. Like it's. Like, oh, well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Earth colors. Yeah, Earth color. Okay, I'm gonna stop the recording. So, so long. Bye.